90% of all scientists that have ever been alive are alive today. That's a lot of information, but don't panic. It's not an exact science. Hey, Shannon, how are you? Spring break, yay! Yay, I don't get that anymore. Uh-huh. I know, that's why I wanted to rub it in. <laughs> but I mean, I don't really get it either, because I'm just spending all my time writing a grant, so whatever. Well, it's it's true. Any academic that says they're on break really just means that they're still working, just maybe not in their office and feeling guiltier than ever. <laughs> Man, it's so true. And I told myself that this break was going to be different and that I wasn't going to feel guilty, but nope. Still super stressed, still doing all that work. So yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's one day we just have to put our laptops somewhere and leave them. Yeah. Well, I mean, well, you do that every day, actually. I do, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, as you frustratingly know. <laughs> right. Shannon, did you get my email? When did you send it? Three minutes ago. Uh, <laughs> to which I laugh like that in reply. <laughs> yeah, I may be a little more attached than you are. <laughs> uh, um, yeah. So. Yeah, no, it's just been... Uh, going along like normal here, we did get some listener feedback this week. Great. Uh, Good to know there's still people listening. <laughs> uh, we got some feedback from Melissa, who said she's a longtime listener and loves the show. So thanks. Uh, <laughs> and that she's studying environmental geology and ocean science. And she said that it was funny. And we actually had a couple listeners say this, one on Twitter and uh, then this email that last week's show is a little ironic because they were listening to it during a windstorm. <laughs> uh, and one listener said they popped popcorn afterwards, which I did too. <laughs> so uh, You're welcome for that. That's what kind of um, service you can expect here at Don't Panic. <laughs> right. Um, but she said this was during the most intense windstorm that's hit Newfoundland in the past decade oh, with wow. sustained wind speeds of 145 kilometers an hour gusting to 175 or 170 kilometers an hour <laughs> that's a monster yeah and there's some really crazy photos that I'm going to uh, link in yeah, she said she was at University of Colorado for a year, and everyone made comments about how crazy the weather was, and that she thought it was laughable. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> so true. Yes. So, yeah, apparently we triggered some windstorms last week, but I'm glad to know that folks actually were able to listen and find out a little bit about what was happening as they were hoping their shingles held on. <laughs> Well, I guess um, then maybe we shouldn't talk about what we're going to talk about today. <laughs> yeah. Uh, another meteorology-themed show because, well, it's happening right now. Uh, <laughs> hopefully next week we can get back, get back to some hard rock stuff. But this week it's all about bombs. That's right. You know, meteorological bombs. <laughs> yes. Um, I kept hearing so many weather stories talking about this, you know, bombogenesis, which is just a fantastic word, obviously, and um, about meteorological bombs and pressure bombs and all of this all over the news. So I thought maybe we should shed some light on the subject for people who don't watch the Weather Channel as much as most weather nerds do, I guess. 
Yeah, because this is a pretty interesting topic, and it's pertinent because as of this recording, which we're doing a little bit early since it's break for you, uh, (laughs) there is a winter storm hitting the East Coast that the media has named Winter Storm Stella, but you will find no meteorologist will acknowledge that name. Yes, correct. In fact, I've already wiped it from my brain that you said it, so. Yeah, (laughs) Uh, but it's this actually going for the probably second lowest surface pressure observed mm-hmm. winter storm in the Northeast. Right. Uh, that's was predicted to dump massive, massive amounts of snow. We're talking feet in a day or less. Right. So how does something like this happen? And what does it mean when we say that it is a weather bomb? <laughs> um, so <laughs> although bombogenesis is fantastic, I also like the term explosive cyclogenesis. Um, that makes me happy as well. <laughs> see, that so... sounds like what you would expect to see in a, a publication. <laughs> yes, yes. It's exactly. hard to take a publication seriously when it says, you know, bombogenesis <laughs> of the March 2017 <laughs> And all I can think of is, um, because my kid loves the Angry Birds movie so much, all I can think of is Bomb, that big, like, black Angry Bird, so that explodes all the time. <laughs> I mean, that that should be the weather symbol for uh, I for think this. so, too. I would totally, uh, I'm totally going to get that in some Microsoft Paint and uh, whip that up. <laughs> oh, come on. We, we can make this a, a Unicode character or something. <laughs> um, so I thought we should talk about... Um, what explosive cyclogenesis is and then go into what cyclogenesis is because that also is a very fancy word. But this big weather bomb that we're talking about, um, these storms all fall into a category of a rapidly developing storm with a pressure drop at least along a certain latitude, we'll get to that in a minute, of 24 millibars in 24 hours. Right, which is a lot. So it's a bomb because the bottom falls out of the pressure. Right. Exactly. Um, usually these develop uh, over the ocean in the wintertime. And the, the term bomb was first used in the Bergen School of Meteorology in the 40s and 50s, which was, I guess, a lot earlier than I would have thought. Yeah, it is. It's definitely earlier. And it's one of those things where it was probably even hard to get good observational data, or yeah. good time series data to figure out exactly what was going on here. But right. the Bergen School is famous for lots of weather knowledge that we have now, lots of theories and forecasting. Right, exactly. Um, and it's and the birthplace of what we're going to back up and take a look at, um, which is, as every meteorologist that at least makes it through the first year of meteorology knows, <laughs> is the Norwegian cyclone model. Ah, uh, yes, the ACM. <laughs> uh, so I will say that... Um, as an aside, I won a trophy because I came as a cold front once at uh, the Severe Storms Laboratory for Halloween. I put fake ice cubes on the front of my shirt. <laughs> so did you just go around, like, pushing people over you all day? Yeah, basically. Um, I also came as a dry line once, which I had a line on my shirt, and I carried around an empty beer bottle. <laughs> um, <laughs> and so Norwegian Cyclone Model was always one that I wanted to go as and never made it <laughs> There's still time. <laughs> there is. But anyway, that's not the kind of model we're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> so the Norwegian cyclone model is a way to think about the evolution of a low-pressure system. And we're going to be looking at a pretty large scale. So we're not talking about something that's happening with individual thunderstorms, uh, 
that that would be what we call the mesoscale. But here we're going to back up and look at things on, you could think of it as sort of a North America size scale, which we call the synoptic scale. Right, exactly. So in most meteorology um, undergraduate programs, you're going to take synoptic scale meteorology and mesoscale meteorology as well, because they obviously work different. Um, And we talked about how pressure works in general, but I figured that we could visit um, the Norwegian cyclone model because how do you get these synoptic scale disturbances um, in the first place? Ooh, there's a word out of the weather discussions. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> a synoptic scale disturbance in all capital letters. That's what you see in the National Weather Service. <laughs> uh, you click on it and then there's Bulletins. a very unhelpful definition. <laughs> Right. <laughs> <laughs> that says something like the scale of synoptic meteorology. Thanks. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> um, but we've talked about a little about this process when we discussed hurricanes, right? Because that's one of those ingredients for hurricanes is this pre-existing disturbance. So some of this should sound familiar to those uh, listeners who listen to that show. Um, but that's what we have to start off with. So first, we're going to start off with a front which is just a temperature gradient, right? Warm on one side, cold on the other. But that's right. not it. <laughs> well, and fronts can be surprisingly sharp. Yes. Yeah. Uh, there are some observations. There's a paper by Howie Bluestein. I think it was probably in the 80s, maybe early 90s, uh, that had tower data from really tall radio towers with mm-hmm. temperature probes up at them, as well as uh, wind sensors and various other things. And... The temperature change in a very tiny amount of space and time was so large that some meteorologists even argued about, does the temperature field have to be continuous? Wow. That's Uh, awesome. But you can get like degrees in minute kind of drops with some of these fronts. Mm -hmm. Well, as anyone experiencing those Chinook winds would know as well too, right? Yeah, exactly. But... (laughs) We don't have to be talking about that concentrated of a, of a front here yet. Just some kind Correct. of gradient, like you said, where there's warm air, cold air, and when we draw lines between them, uh, well, we get, we get contour lines that are either parallel or not quite parallel to wind direction, and we have some fun terms for those. <laughs> Yes, exactly. Oh, man, this is one of my favorite meteor. I always say that. I know it's true, but they have so many favorite meteorology words. So you get these temperature gradients, and you're also getting a pressure gradient, right? And um, so you call this zone the baroclinic zone. Right, but only if <laughs> your isotherms <laughs> and your iso packs or bars are crossing, is yes. it baroclinic? Yes, if, exactly. If they are completely parallel, if there is no temperature advection, in other words, if the wind is blowing in the same direction as the temperature difference, so there's no real change in temperature, mm-hmm. it's called barotropic. Barotropic, exactly. But, but as you get wind, and well, these isopacks or isobars and isotherms that cross, you get advection of temperature. You're moving air of a different temperature along the surface. Right. Um so I will say this Norwegian cyclone model works best in the mid-latitudes. So that's where most of what we talk about will be baroclinic, whereas in the tropics, it's barotropic, which prompted um, my <laughs> my best friend that sat next to me in meteorology. She would always draw a little bear with a with an umbrella drink in its hand when we talked about barotropic stuff. <laughs> yeah, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> Probably what I got to see in dynamics. But anyway, <laughs> so 
<laughs> it doesn't stay like this, right? Nothing is nothing is forever. We don't we don't get this bare tropic perfect alignment of, you know, temperature, no temperature gradient with a pressure gradient. It doesn't stay still. Sooner or later we're going to develop this divergence at upper levels. So this is our upper level disturbance, right? Um, that's going to create this low pressure system at the surface. Right. So you can think of it as you've got these really high wind velocities generally caused by something like the jet stream in the upper levels of the atmosphere. And that is evacuating air. It's pulling air away faster than it can be replenished. Right. So it's sort of like pulling a vacuum, just a very weak one. (laughs) And that's lowering the pressure. Right. And so what that does to our perfectly aligned stationary front is it gets a kink, right? Or a wave. Right. So you could think about this as, I guess you could look, if you're looking at an isopack map, it's like a a kink on a topo map Mm -hmm. as well. But yeah, you see this little thing develop, and that is the beginning of the organization of an actual cyclone. Right. Um, You could even think of it as a nick point in a river system, too. Oh, there you go. Yeah, see, look, all the same physics, just different time scales. <laughs> so now this is where, once we once we set up this wave, all right, um, and you might even see, hear your local meteorologist say this too, um, this is where we begin to organize this system. Um, and this low-pressure system will continue to intensify or deepen, which is something we hear said a lot. So getting lower pressure and the cold and warm fronts, they start to rotate counterclockwise around that low pressure center. And that's cyclonic rotation. In our hemisphere. Exactly. (laughs) Yes. Now, actually, going back to the the kink for a second, there's another word that I remember that you'll you'll see in discussions, especially if you read SBC, Storm Prediction Center discussions. Mm -hmm. Shortwave trough. You hear it called, yes, shortwave trough. And (laughs) you read my mind. Uh, (laughs) No surprise. (laughs) So they are these very small wavelength things, even at synoptic scale, that are on much larger waves called Rossby waves. Good old Rossby waves. Right. And so these are continent scale waves. And I want to do a show on them at some point because... The number of them determines whether the weather systems stay in place or goes to the east or goes to the west, just by the number of Rossby waves in your hemisphere. The physics behind it are really cool, but those are big troughs when you hear meteorologists talking about a trough coming across the country, and these little kinks are shortwave troughs. They're baby troughs. (laughs) Little baby troughs. I love it. <laughs> uh, we get really wrapped up in this, but this is sort of the defining line between, you know, this this kicks off, you know, synoptic to mesoscale because this these little shortwave troughs can start to influence mesoscale stuff a lot. So that's why you know, we're kind of harping on this, but it's also kind of important in terms of forecasting. You get a shortwave trough ripping through somewhere where there's already an unstable atmosphere. You can kick off some pretty vicious thunderstorms right exactly yes and right then you have to yeah gas up your gas up your car so you can go chase them all but right <laughs> but, that's another story <laughs> but i digress so yes <laughs> we, we, we get this cyclonic rotation counterclockwise in our hemisphere yes. and we have cold air that's more dense than warm air we talked about this recently as well so mm-hmm. it starts moving along the surface faster 
and it begins to catch up to the warm front. As it moves, this is why I said, did you, uh, you know, throw people above you when he dressed as a cold front? As it moves, all the warm <laughs> air in front of it gets lifted up on the denser cold air. It's sort of like a plume of water going under salt water, or you could even think of it as uh, dynamics of submarine landslides and turbidity currents. Right. It's, it's was- a gravity flow. That was that was a beautiful <laughs> getting all the aspects of the geoscience in that um, in that illustration. That was wonderful. Um, <laughs> we also, of course, have to make up a name for how this works too, right? And so we say that this warm air is being lifted isentropically, which just means along a slanted surface. Right. <laughs> but... Or it can be really pretentious and isentropically. <laughs> But we can make all kinds of fancy maps about isentropic lift. Yes. And yeah, uh, these are things that people do when they have too much time with Jim Pack. <laughs> Good old Jim Pack. <laughs> uh, I'll link in the show notes. Jim Pack is a very much aging meteorological plotting and analysis tool. Uh, you said it's still in use, right? Yeah, we still maintain it. It's uh, <laughs> mind blowing to me. The to Weather me. Service dropped support in 2007 or 8. Yeah. <laughs> and we're working on replacements, but it did a lot of calculations and a lot of plots. And I mean, Excel and Paint could probably replace it. I'm just going to throw that out there. <laughs> well, so I'll link in again the, the Python podcast that we were on uh, last week talking about this, but we get into Jimpack a lot there. So <laughs> Awesome. We'll leave it there. Okay. But we, we've got we've got this disturbance. We've got the the cold front rushing, lifting warm air, trying to catch up to the warm front. So what happens next? Well, this is kind of, I mean, this is the exciting part, but also the, the beginning of the end too, right? Because as you're lifting this warm air isentropically, and this is where you get the little mesoscale storms, right? You've got warm air lifting up. We've talked about what happens then. So in this little area of the larger um, cyclone system is where you're going to get all your precip if you're going to get it at all. Right. So but. in this, in at the, the trailing edge of this warm sector. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, but this is also the death of it too, because as that cold air, that cold front catches up with this warm front, uh, we call that another word, the front becomes occluded. And basically, the cold air has blocked off all the warm air supply, and now the warm air supply is gone, and there's basically nothing to fuel the system anymore. Right. And so where you had this really nice, well-developed cyclone that was tilting with height, uh, Mm -hmm. and it was feeding itself warm air and getting more and more intense, now everything comes to a stop, everything comes crashing together, the tilt goes away. And the air begins to literally fall back down. Yep. And so a hurricane's big enough to sustain this cyclicity throughout its whole thing. But this is the death of the um, cyclone. So once it can't, doesn't have any warm air anymore, it starts to collapse. You lose all your fuel for your little mesoscale storms. And there you go. Right. So this dissipation, the saddest, the saddest part. <laughs> <laughs> so that is the life of a cyclone, according to the Norwegian cyclone model. And like all models, I know Shannon has the box quote that she loves, but <laughs> this is a general principle of operation. Of course, there are textbook examples, but we also see strange things happening too. 
Uh, right, exactly. And I mean, I guess bombs could fall into that strange thing part. Um, I, but I think so because they're not typical in yeah <laughs> in their intensification. Right. Yeah. The, the way it happens is pretty normal. Um, but okay. So getting back to bombs, um, that word, explosive cyclogenesis and bomb, um, was brought into the common meteorological parlance not first said but brought into it in the 70s by an mit professor uh, dr fred sanders and he wrote in a paper in 1980 in monthly weather review with his colleague uh john geicom and they sort of introduced this explosive cyclogenesis model right so they talked about these events that happen I, i'm not going to say often but they're not rare i mean several times a year we hear something about a bomb Right, exactly. Of the meteorological kind. (laughs) Yes. Um, They were actually way less rare than I thought um, because one stat I read, and I'm not sure about this, was like 40-ish storms a year reach this status, um, generally in the northern hemisphere winter. But um, So, like we said, they are sort of unusual, but not the weirdest thing that's ever happened. I I could believe it globally, for sure. Yeah, yeah. That's why I'm not sure about that stat. So. Yeah. So, Sanders and Geicom had this paper, and they actually complicated the definition a little bit. So before, it was something like a millibar an hour for 24 hours. Uh, Well, there's all kinds of interesting things that happen with latitude, everything versus latitude, (laughs) meteorology. And so they actually decided that it should deepen by at least 24 times the sine of latitude divided by the sine of 60 degrees millibars in 24 hours. (laughs) I like this, though, because it actually makes a little bit more sense. Maybe From a because... physics standpoint, it makes more sense. It's certainly not as pretty. Yes. <laughs> yes, and you certainly never heard any of the TV meteorologists talking about this sort of caveat to, <laughs> to extreme cyclogenesis. That's for sure. Right. I um, mean, I guess you would have to calculate this as the storm moves across the country to see if it technically qualifies. Yeah, I yeah, I don't know like when does uh, this when does this start? Like what is the gradient of dropping at what latitude do you actually start to do it? But I mean it changes it though. So it changes it significantly. Um because at the poles this means deepening of 28 millibars for 24 hours, but if you're at 25 degrees latitude it only be 12 millibars for 24 hours, which would right. seem like that would not be very unusual at all. So a factor of 2 yeah. <laughs> but remember, as you get closer and closer to the equator, we're getting less and less of these baroclinic zones mm-hmm. that help us get these things spun up in the first place. So as we go closer to the equator, it takes less pressure change per time to classify as explosive cyclogenesis. So, right. okay, fine. This is, this is a way to normalize it spatially across the planet. Yeah, I, I actually I actually like this complication, um, and especially because we get to introduce a new... <laughs> A, a new term again um and what sanders and geicom said you know any of these storms that would qualify wherever they are in latitudinally um all these rates qualify for what we call one bergeron yes which, which I, <laughs> come on <laughs> so they named this for their mentor and in the initial draft of the notes you had written tom bergeron yeah <laughs> which is definitely the host of America's Funniest Home Videos. Uh, the, the advisor on, was man. Tor Bergeron. Come on. Tom, Tor. It's the same. Right. Uh, uh, but this is this is kind of a nice way to do it because, 
okay, is it dropping at six tenths of the rate it needs? Okay, it's 0.6 Bergeron independent of latitude. Right, exactly. So you could contour the Bergeron field. <laughs> Man, I'm going to do this. Isobergerons? Yes. <laughs> yeah. I, I have never seen an isobergeron map, but I think we should be the first people to produce such a thing. Absolutely. We're making this. This is happening. <laughs> <laughs> you just you just get some uh, some model runs and difference a bunch of grids and have a lot of RAM. <laughs> Man, and I was just going to get my colored pencils out. Okay. <laughs> okay, difference in approach. Yep, exactly. <laughs> I'm more of the gym back model on this one. <laughs> um, so, so with all this background, um, clearly the term bomb is often misused <laughs> by lots of well-intentioned forecasters, I'm sure. Um, and so lots of times it's just used to indicate nor'easters and heavy snowstorms. Um, I read that in New Zealand... A lot of times, just a strong storm gets called a weather bomb with no hmm, That's no interesting relation. and frustrating. I know. I thought so, too. And I thought it was weird to call out New Zealand like that. But apparently, it was some meteorologist said that, and it stuck. And now it's endemic in the forecasting in New Zealand. It is the law of the continent Zealandia. Exactly. <laughs> that's exactly uh, where I was going with that. <laughs> yeah. So, it... You know, this last storm that we're talking about, which will be well off the coast and dying out when this show airs, was an interesting one. We knew several days out that it was coming. In fact, airlines preemptively canceled flights, people canceled trips, uh, universities shut down before there was even a flake of snow in the sky. Yep. <laughs> and we, we knew that this storm was going to be in the running for the lowest pressure observed up there mm -hmm. and it indeed as of recording this is but there was something interesting that happened and i'm waiting to see the post-mortem on this because the models and all the forecasters and everybody we were all very confident that this storm was going to dump snow on new york city eastern pa that whole area and it did dump snow but not there yeah, it's sleeting in New York City right now. Which it's sleeting is a there. A whole nother problem. Eastern Pennsylvania had inches of snow instead of two feet, which is what was predicted. Mm -hmm. uh, but northern New York is just absolutely getting hammered. They said it's falling faster than they're ready for with the number of plows they have on hand. They closed yeah. the roads for all non-essential travel. Uh, in fact, the statement said that you should stay home and bake brownies or read a book. <laughs> um, I, I saw also that they're remobilizing the National Guard, basically sending them up north now. Um, it says that Binghamton's got over 30 inches. There's some really cool time-lapse snow videos out there as well from the northern part. So it did happen, just not where... Not where they thought. That's nice. <laughs> and, well, the reason I'm saying I'm so interested in seeing the postmortem on this is, one, there was pretty decent model convergence. Mm -hmm. Yeah, which never happens. <laughs> right. Uh, I guess that means you should be worried. Uh -huh. uh, also, like, the initialization of the models and the models' short-term forecasts had been doing a very good job. Uh, yeah. Well, even a blind squirrel finds a nut. <laughs> I mean, this morning I was looking at the GFS model and some satellite data and things were all good in the initialization. And then it went horribly wrong by this afternoon. 
which just, you know, I guess that keeps meteorologists employed, so. Right. Uh, so it's, it's something interesting to keep an eye out. I'm sure that somebody, you know, somebody's weather blog, Cliff Mass, or somebody is going to have an article yeah. about this. Yeah, I am sure. But it was fun to keep hearing bombogenesis on all over the news, though. I feel like it should be a dance. <laughs> I could do that, too. Okay. So my to-do list for this week. Bergeron, ISO Bergeron map. Check. <laughs> bombogenesis dance. <laughs> I'm sure it's going to look something like the Carlton. But... Yeah, you know, it's the, the enchantment <laughs> under the troposphere dance. With... Oh, my goodness. <laughs> yeah. Oh, this, um, we should probably move on before this gets worse. <laughs> right. So that means it's time for everybody's favorite segment of the show, Fun Paper Friday. Yay. I don't so, know. I, my cat stole my bear bill. I have no idea where it is. <laughs> <laughs> you would think that would be easy to find. Uh, you would think. <laughs> <laughs> so you picked the paper this week. And I feel like, you know, maybe you're pandering a little bit here because this is a high-speed camera paper. I know. The video sucked me in. I thought that, too. I was like, man, John's going to love this one, and I'm not picking it because of that. But <laughs> yeah. Because the video was so cool. So this is uh, Fast Dynamics of Water Droplets Freezing from the Outside In by Wildeman et al. Um, and it's in Physical Review Letters, and it just came out uh, a couple weeks ago. But um, there's an awesome video that goes along with it. I watched it like three times. Yeah, and it's four minutes long. And that four minutes covers three seconds of real time. I know. <laughs> but it, And they have it annotated with what's going on and where you should be looking. It sounds excruciating. But yes, I watched it multiple times as well. See? Exactly. <laughs> exactly. It was so cool. Um, so what the researchers did... Um, I also like the super the experimental setup. It's also very um, very elegant as well. So basically, they're just freezing these drops, super cool drops of water, which we'll get into what that means, um, from the outside in, and basically seeing what the dynamics of that system are, because obviously ice is gonna expand, right? <laughs> and so, what happens when you freeze these little droplets? And um, obviously. As we've alluded to, they explode pretty awesomely. Right. But they, they start out the paper by discussing something called the Prince Rupert's Drop. Have you ever heard of this before? I had not, actually. Okay, so this is a fracture mechanic geek thing. I figured you knew about uh, it. <laughs> and I'll link in a video that Smarter Every Day, Destin at Smarter Every Day, produced, where he actually makes some of these and okay. videos them in ultra, ultra high speed. Uh, <laughs> it's it's incredible. So you, you get some molten glass, which is really not that hard to do. Mm -hmm. um, and you drop it in a bucket of water. And okay. what you get is this big blob of glass at the end that tapers sort of a teardrop shape off to a long stringy tail. Okay. Makes sense, right? Yeah. Totally. All right. Now, you can pull that glass out of the water, put it on the workbench, take a hammer and smash into the, the, the bulb end on it, mm -hmm. and it won't break. And you can do that incredibly hard, and it won't break. That's crazy. Now, the tail, the little fine tail, if you nick the tail, the entire thing explodes. 
That's awesome. And it has to do with, as the glass goes into the water, it starts cooling from the outside in, which ends up meaning that the entire structure is in a state of tension, which makes it very strong. And it's actually how we produced strengthened glass today. Oh, okay. Uh, and we also have things like pretensioned concrete. You know, we, we put things right. in tension to help increase their yield strength. Right. Okay. Makes now, sense. Now, that's glass. Glass contracts as it gets colder, like pretty much everything else. <laughs> there are two yeah. substances that are common uh, that you have in your house. One is ice that gets less dense, grows when it freezes, and the other is silicon. Good old silicon. Yeah. So these pose some problems because now as you start cooling from the outside in, instead of getting smaller and smaller in terms of volume and putting things in tension, you get bigger and bigger and you build up pressure against some kind of outside shell. Right. And then boom. <laughs> and this then boom. Kind of... <laughs> but it's not quite that simple. No, no, it's not. Um, I think this is an interesting convergence, again, of geology and meteorology, though, because... Um, in geology, you know, we call this frost wedging, and it is how you get a lot of landforms in the desert, right? Where you get really cold temperatures at night, ice forms, voila, you make all kinds of things like sandstone arches and really cool stuff like that. Right. Whereas in meteorology, this paper, though it just seems like maybe a fun thing to do, is pretty important for microphysics modelers, people that model uh, what goes on with water droplets and ice particles in the clouds, Exactly. So they start out in the setup with a glass slide that has candle soot on it, which sounds unsophisticated, <laughs> but the candle soot makes the surface hydrophobic, which means instead of putting the drop of water on the glass slide and it's spreading out, it wetting the glass, as a material scientist would say, mm -hmm. it beads up into pretty much a perfectly round ball. And as it turns out, by looking at the angle that that ball makes with the plate, uh, you can determine lots of things about the surface tension of the fluid. But that's not why they did it. They just did no. it so it would beat up and make a sphere. Which is super cool. I didn't really ever think about that at all. Right. So they make this sphere... And they put the whole thing in a vacuum chamber. They cool it, and they make sure the vapor pressure in the vacuum chamber is in equilibrium with the water droplet by having this ice on a cooling plate in there. Mm -hmm. And they cool it down below zero C, and it stays liquid. Right. And so that is what we call supercooled, which happens in the atmosphere. Yeah, and it's pretty cool because it happens because there's no nuclei yeah. for the freezing to happen on. You need yeah. something that reduces the surface tension, something that reduces the surface energy for freezing to start at that point and then propagate outward. Right. Uh, if, if you have perfectly pure water, you can cool it well below freezing if you do it carefully and don't disturb it. This is one of those things where, you know, if you go up and tap somebody's super cooled adult beverage and all of a sudden, the freezing nucleates and it spews everywhere. Yes. <laughs> Same process. <laughs> um, and so they said, I, I thought this would have happened before this, but um, that the candle soot itself remained inactive as a nucleus down to minus 15 Celsius. Yeah. And 
I want to say it has something to do with like the Kohler curve of the, does that sound right? Yeah. 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 We'll have to link that in. I need to look that up a little bit more. We were talking about that and yeah, I don't remember those physics quite as well as I wish I did. Yes. But (laughs) to get this to nucleate, they actually take a, a stylus that is silver iodide and they touch the drop because silver iodide has a crystal structure similar to that of ice and mm-hmm. makes a perfect nucleation site for supercooled water. Yeah, I thought that was so neat. Yeah, so. <laughs> and obviously in the video, this is, I can't keep saying super cool. I mean, I guess I can. <laughs> this part is very, very fun because you've got this super cooled water droplet and this little silver iodide stylus just kind of bloops and then all of a sudden you've got this ball of ice freezing from the outside in yeah and it should start making sense why silver iodide is one of the things that they spray out of airplanes to try to induce precipitation when it's needed it's cloud seeding yeah exactly right so (laughs) they've got this silver iodide they touch it the outer shell becomes ice and it starts freezing inward. Right. And the pressure builds up incredibly, incredibly fast. Yes. Um, droplet temperature also shoots up, obviously, um, to the ice liquid coexistence temperature zero. Um, <laughs> I thought this was great because they talk about this initial release of latent heat, remember, because the water's super cooled, is accompanied right. by a slight rollover or displacement of the droplet. And obviously, I kept thinking about the popcorn from last week's show. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and it even <laughs> has a little foot that comes out. Exactly. Uh, so. Exactly. <laughs> Full circle. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, what ends up happening is there's a fracture somewhere weak in this shell of ice, and a little jet of water that's about the diameter of the droplet, or about the length of the droplet diameter, shoots out and freezes as it's shooting out. Makes this little leg. But I thought, I thought that was very interesting that it was always sort of the diameter of the droplet. Yeah, there's some kind of pleasing scaling there. Isn't it? <laughs> um, but they did a calculation, and they said, okay, well, water is pretty much incompressible. So let's put what we know about the compressibility of water in to this equation, and let's figure out what happens if we freeze 1% of the volume of the droplet into ice what happens to the pressure inside the droplet and remember we're talking very tiny droplets here right right so Uh, it's in the order of millimeters basically right and so in this millimeter droplet the pressure goes up about two megapascals which is roughly (laughs) 300 psi that's amazing so it's 10 times the pressure in a car tire from freezing one percent of the volume. And they said in there, and I love it because for a physicist, I couldn't believe they said this. This <laughs> sounded like a geophysicist. They said, there are some things in here that are probably off, but we're, we're good to an order of magnitude. <laughs> I also highlighted that as well. <laughs> uh, because physicists are almost never satisfied with that, it seems like. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I thought that was pretty funny. <laughs> yeah. So they, they make this model that's really pretty nice uh talking about the energy release that happens during this and then what happens as the 
droplet begins to fracture and you get all kinds of cool cavitation effects inside. Uh, yeah, I always like cavitation and you can see this pretty clearly in the video, these little bubbles that form. Um, and so as you start, to, I thought this was really neat and I figured you would also appreciate it in terms of fracture dynamics. It was cool because you, you crack the outer shell and then you start to heal with the liquid water that's still inside. And this is probably the most boring part of the video because <laughs> it takes a while. It does but. take a while. Um, <laughs> but that's kind of cool, too. I mean, it, it, it makes sense, right? So you break it, and then this liquid water makes its way up to the surface and starts to refreeze again. And I have to think that there's also some stuff going on. It's buried in the equations in here and not discussed a ton. But with the fact that there's a pressure melting point mm -hmm. for the ice, right. that varies, and we're not changing pressure in a minor way here. Right. Yeah, uh, exactly. But what I really loved is they said, okay, let's imagine what happens when the droplet breaks. Mm -hmm. So we're going to assume for a simple model that it's a perfect sphere and it cracks into two halves and they start separating. And they derive the equation and lo and behold, it's everybody's favorite system, the initially <laughs> compressed mass spring solution. Uh, yep. <laughs> and you can calculate the, the natural, the resonant frequency of mass spring systems. We do it all the time for everything in physics. <laughs> and yes. yeah. uh, it turns out for a droplet this small, it's 1.6 megahertz. So they said no wonder nobody can really see what's going on in terms of yeah. the fracture dynamics because we have no cameras that are going to do that. Yeah, exactly. If you want to capture... That process, you need to sample, you know, at least several times that. Mm -hmm. uh, so we're talking millions of frames per second. That is um, very interesting. Yeah. I, I, I just, I love that this seemingly complicated system reduced down to a relatively straightforward ODE. Yeah. That you can drive an analytic, an analytic solution for. Yep, exactly. Yep. I... I agree. Um, <laughs> I thought this was interesting, too, that um, the fragment velocity of these little guys exploding off was independent of the size of the droplets, too. You know, that, that seems surprising. And then you think about it. And yeah, I guess so. Go back to being a mass spring system. Yep. The spring is formed by the ice, right? Mm-hmm. And as long as the ice has the same... You can think of it as a spring constant... Uh, right. it's going to be a modulus for material like this. Right. But as long as it has the same spring constant, you store the same amount of energy per displacement. So then so, it be. So it sort of makes sense. Yeah, um, true. But, yeah, it's, it wasn't straightforward at all when I first read that. And then you think, okay, okay, so you're releasing volume with the Q. Okay, yeah. But... Uh, <laughs> It was a really cool result, and it's nice to see something like that verified in such a clean way. Yeah, yep, exactly. The elegantness of this little experiment, because, I mean, yeah, it wasn't very involved. Now, I just wish that it didn't have to be in a vacuum, <laughs> because then this would be completely doable at home, like the popcorn experiment. Yeah, that is true. That's uh, very true. Well, okay, I mean, silver iodide tip, meh. Your, your neighborhood ace. Uh, uh, exactly. 
But, oh. <laughs> but this is one of those that, uh, like, what was the last ice paper that we talked about? I guess it was the spinning ice disc paper. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Ex- yeah, uh, that was the also extremely elegant solution. Yeah. Man, mental note. I guess if you want some elegant uh, <laughs> methodologies, work with ice. It, it just has so many cool properties. And it's also a mineral. And it's also a mineral. <laughs> yes. I, we finally converted you after a hundred and something episodes. Uh, I figured I'd throw that in there for you. Yeah, I appreciate it. <laughs> but, well, if you have an idea for a fun paper that you would like to hear us discuss or any more feedback for the show or if our talking about meteorological phenomena brought a snowstorm or windstorm your way, we would love to hear from you. Shannon, how can they get a hold of us? Uh, show at don'tpanicgeocast.com. Um, always keep those audio comments coming. Uh, we're on Twitter at don'tpanicgeo, at geo underscore Lehman, and at Shannon Doolin. And we hang out in the Slack chat room on the Software Underground Don't Panic channel. And until next week, remember, don't panic. It's not an exact science. Any opinions, findings, conclusions, or recommendations expressed are solely ours and do not necessarily reflect the views of our employers or funding agencies.